All right, we want to get back into the book of Ruth. It's been a long time since we've been there, but we want to go back there if we can. So if you take your Bible, let's go over to Ruth chapter 3. We're going to be zeroing in the first five verses of Ruth chapter 3. Sometimes, you understand, relationships can become complex. Um, But a person who's willing to love you and care for you, even when you are at your worst, is a very special friend. Imagine a time when you are upset, you're negative, you're critical, you're demanding, you're short-tempered, and a person who's really not a close relative of yours sees you this way, but decides to remain by your side and help you regardless of your attitude and your mood. You know that person is a very special person. In order to put up with you. Very, very special person. You've done so many things to drive them off. And they are nevertheless hanging around out of a sense of loyalty and dedication to you and because they possibly love you and even love your Lord. That's the reason why they're putting up with all of those negative attitudes. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 46 and 47, Jesus says that anyone can love their family and close friends, but loving a person who is unlovely will reveal genuine godlike love. He says in Matthew 5, 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Lots of people out in the world can love their friends. Lots of people in the world can love people who love them back. A lot of people in the world can love their family members. There's nothing special if you say that you love your family members that's going to make you distinctively Christian. Even the world in a really rough and difficult day and age in which we live honors fathers. (laughs) Even the world does that, even though there are many out there that think it's toxic masculinity day, all right? But even though that's the case... The world still knows knows how to honor fathers. But Jesus says there's nothing special about your love as being Christian, just being able to love family members. Nothing. What is it that makes your love special? The fact that you are able to love those who are unlovely. That's what makes it special. Naomi, if you remember our story in the book of Ruth was not the most ideal mother-in-law. In chapter one, as we started this series, we saw how the awful tragedies of losing her husband, Elimelech, and her two sons, Malone and Chilion. And you remember how we talked about the fact that the term Malone in the Hebrew language means sick, and the term Chilion means weakly, So her two sons, which we said, given the Hebrew language there, could have possibly actually been twins. So my wife and I can relate to that. But they were born sick and weakly because she gave birth and gestation to them during a great famine. And so they're born during this famine. 
She was malnourished. Her children were malnourished, but they were born and they lived. By all accounts, probably Malone and Chilion should have died prior to birth, but they didn't. The God preserved their life. They were born and they began to grow, but their lives were severely shortened because they were weak and sickly. So all of that occurred in relationship to Elimelech, Malone, Chilion. It, it jaded Naomi's view of life and view of God. She had gone from being a very pleasant woman. And you understand that's exactly what the Hebrew term Naomi means, to be pleasant or sweet. Her, her parents had named her Sweetie. Naomi, sweetie, pleasant. She had gone from that to being a very bitter woman because of these tragedies. And she blamed Almighty God for her plight and implies that somehow God was unjustly abusing her with these tragedies. She was even very, very bitter. In fact, If you would take your Bible, let's go back just for a moment to chapter 1 of Ruth and verse 20 and 21. You can see this, and I'm reading from, and this is the very first time that I um, am preaching from my new LSB Bible, all right? So I'm reading from LSB Bible. I already have it all marked up, all right? The whole thing is all marked up, but... um, is the first time to preach from it. Uh, if you don't have a chance to uh, get a copy of the LSB, uh, sell your firstborn and get a copy, okay? <laughs> I'm just kidding. That could be grossly misunderstood in the day and age in which we live. But just, yeah, it is Father's Day. <laughs> That's right. Sell your, <laughs> sell your second born then, okay. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's well worth it. The translation is wonderful. You've heard Pastor John talk about it quite frequently already. But in chapter one of Ruth and verses 20 and 21, after um, Ruth and Naomi have returned to, especially Naomi returning to Bethlehem, they caused quite a stir when they came into town. But in verse 20, it says, she said to them, speaking to the women there in, in Bethlehem, do not call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant or sweet anymore. Call me bitter, Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And when she speaks of the word Almighty, she doesn't use the the personal name of Yahweh here. She uses the name Shaddai, which emphasizes the Almighty power of God. The Shaddai, the great powerful one, has dealt very, very bitterly with me, she says, Verse 21, I went out full, which by the way is a misnomer. She didn't leave Bethlehem full. It was the middle of famine. She left empty. I went out full, she said, but she's probably referring here to her heart. So there's a double meaning here, but Yahweh has caused me to return empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Yahweh has answered against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity against me. So there you go. 
she blamed Almighty God for her plight and implies that somehow he was abusive towards her. She's even so bitter against Yahweh that she actively encouraged her two daughter-in-laws, Orpah, and by the way, I understand that Oprah was named after Orpah, only her mother didn't know the proper pronunciation. So that's how she got her name. So even her name's a mispronunciation of what's in the Bible. Orpah was her name. Orpah, who was married to Chilion. And Ruth was married to Malone. So you can see here that Ruth was married to Sickly and Orpah was married to Weak. And Naomi comes to them and she actively encourages her daughters-in-law to return to their Moabite families and to their gods. That's such a significant thing. She wants them to return to their gods. Look at verse 15 of chapter one. Then she said, behold, your sister-in-law has returned to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. She's urging Ruth to do what Orpah has already done. Orpah decided to leave. Even though she had affection for Naomi, she decided to leave Naomi returned to her family there in Moab. And, and now, she, now Naomi is urging Ruth to do exactly the same thing. That's remarkable. So she's encouraging Ruth to forsake her commitment to Yahweh as her God. And return to the terrible God of the Moabites. Now we, we explained about this in some detail earlier on in this series on how back in ancient times, when a woman would marry a man, she had to convert to usually to his religion. That was especially true among the Hebrews. So in order for Orpah and in order for Ruth to marry these two Hebrew boys, they had to convert to following Yahweh and to do that. The only problem was that Orpah's supposed conversion or confession of faith to follow Yahweh and the Mosaic covenant was um, wholly lacking. It was insincere. Otherwise, she would never have forsaken it. However, Ruth's turned out to be as genuine as gold. In other words, even after her husband is gone, even, even though she has an opportunity now to return to her family, she has an opportunity to return to her gods, she chooses not to do it. And you can remember that when we talked about this, the chief god of the Moabites was uh, Chemosh. Chemosh is the god that required child sacrifice. Second Kings chapter 3 and verse 27. And it's actually in Numbers 21, 29, the Moabites were called the people of Chemosh. Um. Now, you would have to be a very bitter and angry person to go this far and essentially turn your own daughters-in-law over to a wicked God and wicked practices like that. That shows you how bitter Naomi was. Naomi was not angry at her daughters-in-law. She was angry at Yahweh. 
So she's basically saying to Orpah and Ruth, you go back to your family, you go back to your gods, Yahweh's not worth following. But despite this, this is quite amazing. Ruth's commitment to Yahweh and the Mosaic covenant was unshakable. How does she respond to her angry, bitter, resentful mother-in-law who could care less about her welfare and return her to a worthless and wicked pagan religion? In fact, she refuses to leave Naomi's side. Pick up in verse 16 of chapter 1. But Ruth said, do not press me to forsake you in turning back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may Yahweh do to me and more, if anything but death separates you and me. Now, when she makes that statement at the end, anything but death separate you and me, that was a pretty serious statement in light of the fact that all three of them had had their husbands die. So you can see the sincerity of Ruth coming through that statement as she swears her allegiance to Naomi. Remarkable allegiance. Now, I don't believe that the real reason Ruth remains is just to remain loyal to Naomi. That's a factor, but I don't think that's it. I believe that she wants to remain loyal to Naomi's God, which I think bears it out in the, in the entire book. She was a genuine convert to the worship of Yahweh and the keeping of his covenant. And as a result, Ruth was resolved to help Naomi wherever she could to serve Yahweh by showing Naomi's showing Naomi kindness. In fact, the Hebrew meaning of Ruth's name means friendship. She wanted Naomi to survive and bless Yahweh again, despite her bitter grief, and it worked. You understand, Ruth is very, very young in the faith, and yet her sincerity in terms of pure devotion to Yahweh was remarkable. Where Naomi, who should, was well-versed in the Mosaic Covenant, should have known better. But she doesn't. She's the one that becomes bitter. Is it possible sometimes people that have been exposed and walking supposedly in the faith for a long period of time are the ones who really need more help than those who are new believers, who have a sincere and pure faith? Wow. Wow. So she wanted Naomi to survive and to bless Yahweh again, despite her bitter grief. And by the way, it worked. In chapter two, Ruth now risks her life. The emphasis here is made in chapter two by going out into the fields around Bethlehem to glean from the harvest. Here is an obviously Moabite woman going out among her arch enemies, the Israelites, And because she was a woman and young, they could have easily taken advantage of her or even killed her. And many of them, because the Moabites and the Israelites were arch enemies. 
Ruth risks her life and does this anyhow. And in order to glean from the harvest and in, in God's providential redemptive purposes here, she meets Boaz. And he turns around and instead of taking advantage of her, provides her safety and nourishment. Chapter 2, look at verse 8. Then Boaz said to you, Ruth, have you not heard my daughter? Do not go to glean another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my young women let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the young men not to touch you. And if you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the young men draw. And then if you skip down to verse 22, you can see his care for her, which is remarkable. Verse 22, it says, Naomi said to um, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, so that others do not oppress you in another field. And that word oppress is a very deliberate word. It really could mean something as simple as harassment, but it also could mean something as as advanced as, um, or as serious as physically assaulting her. Okay. Whatever the case may be, there's a broad semantic idea behind that particular word. So one, one of those two things could have happened in this case. And, and since the Moabites were arch enemies of the Israelites, that's, that's what brought this about. So why is he so kind to her? Well, because her reputation had preceded her. She was the talk of the town. Uh, go up to chapter two and verse 10 and look at verse 10, where it says, um, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight, that you should take notice of me, though I am a foreigner? And Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you forsook your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May Yahweh fully repay your work and may your wages be full from Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Now, you see that last little phrase in verse 12? That's a very significant little phrase. Under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Because that now plays a very significant role in chapter 3. Very significant role in chapter three. So when Ruth now returns to Naomi, loaded with barley, Naomi is overwhelmed. She's risked her life. Ruth has gone out, risked her life and done this. She's overwhelmed and astounded. So she probes Ruth on how this happened. How did all this happen? You can see that in chapter two, verses 19 and 20. Well, God now has used Ruth's kindness loyalty and faithfulness to help change Naomi's perception of her circumstances. And in fact, in in chapter two and verse 20, you can see Naomi's attitude change. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed of Yahweh who has not forsaken his loving kindness to the living and to the dead. Then Naomi said to her, 
the, the man is our relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Now, this is very significant. Naomi immediately understood the relationship Boaz had to them by being related to them through the law. He was related. But the key thing is when she makes the statement that Yahweh has not forsaken his loving kindness, his chesed, which is often the Old Testament word for grace. He has not forsaken his grace to the living and to the dead. Boy, that was quite a statement now where she had been so bitter that all this had happened. And of course, when she's referring to the dead, she's primarily referring to Elimelech, her husband, and to Malone and Chilion, her two sons. All right, God has not forsaken his grace to them. And that's being seen now in what God has done in bringing Boaz along in order to assist and help Ruth and provide for her safety as well as other provisions. So God has really used Ruth's kindness, loyalty, and faithfulness to have a significant impact on Naomi's life. Naomi goes from bitterness to blessing. Her cold, hard, embittered heart is melted. Yahweh does good things, and she wants Yahweh to bless Boaz. Now, that's my introduction. Let's go to chapter 3. All right? Chapter 3. Now we turn to chapter 3, and Naomi now has a chance to bless Ruth. (laughs) Now the table has turned. All right? Ruth has been the one that's been blessing Naomi, this bitter, bitter mother-in-law, blessing her and blessing her, risking her life on her behalf. That's all that's happened. Now Naomi sees the loving kindness and the grace of Yahweh coming through what Ruth has done. And now Naomi turns with this changed heart and now wants to bless Ruth. Wow. You don't realize the impact your kindness, your grace to those who are unlovely. You don't realize the impact you can have. So this becomes Naomi's opportunity to demonstrate her love for Ruth, and she does it. When an undeserving person knows that they have been loved by a person that they have treated miserably... It has the potential to be powerfully life-changing. Let me refer to one other verse. I can't help but do this, but let's go back to Luke chapter 6 just for a moment. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. The Lord Jesus Christ is teaching the Sermon on the Valley. Matthew 5, there's a Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Valley is very similar to Sermon on the Mount. But in Luke chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Was Ruth Naomi's enemy? Yes. Was 
Naomi, Ruth's enemy, yes. On a human level, no doubt about that. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who disparage you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your garden, a garment, do not withhold your tunic from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. And treat others the same way you want them to treat you. And if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Good question. For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good, lend and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to the ungrateful and evil. There's, that's a great statement. He's kind to the ungrateful and evil. You know what he's talking about? You and me. <laughs> he's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, verse 36 says, just as your father is merciful. Did Ruth, as a very young believer in Yahweh, exercise that kind of action towards Naomi? Absolutely yes. That that was key. Absolutely yes. Now notice carefully what Naomi says to you, Ruth, in response for all that Ruth has done. Look at verse one of Ruth chapter three. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, now you understand Naomi's heart is radically changed now. My daughter, shall I not seek a state of rest for you that it may be well with you? Do you see the change here? This is one of the pivotal verses in the entire book. The whole book hangs on this verse. There's a whole change in Naomi's attitude towards Ruth. It's radical. There is strong and lasting bond between these two women now. Lots of mutual love and trust now. Naomi now sees that God is doing a great thing. So let's take a look at this and break this down. These first five verses. We'll talk about Naomi's positive involvement here. And one of the first things that Naomi does is Naomi now is very tender towards Ruth, something that she has not been up to this point. She's very tender towards her. There's a couple things about this. First of all, there is a tenderness in the way that she addresses Ruth. There's two significant things that stand out here that show a remarkable change in Naomi's attitude and renewed love and a care for Ruth. Yahweh has used Ruth to get to Naomi's heart. So Naomi now in response response to that refers to her as my daughter. My daughter. Naomi's direct address to Ruth by using the terms my daughter indicates the personal attachment that she has now by using this personal possessive pronoun, my. She, her approach to Ruth is that of a loving mother to a daughter. Now, 
Boaz had already treated Ruth in a similar fashion, almost like a father. Back in chapter 2 and verse 8, he refers to her as my daughter. And I don't know whether that was convicting to Naomi or not, because Naomi really had not thought of Ruth in those terms, not the way that Boaz is dealing, and Boaz hardly knew Ruth. But he, he, it's like a father to a daughter. My daughter, he says to her back in chapter 2 and verse 8. But for Naomi, this is a radical change, especially from chapter 1 and verse 15, when she unlovingly and carelessly prevailed upon Ruth to return to her wicked paganism and go back to her gods. But by contrast, Ruth's love and care and devotion to her and Yahweh, even while Naomi was embittered, was exactly the thing that Naomi needed in her life. Now, Naomi genuinely cares for Ruth's welfare. So let me ask you a question at this particular point. If this is the case, when life's hardships seem overwhelmingly overwhelming, to you, are you a bitter Naomi or are you a loving Ruth? What would the people who know you say about you? Do you live with a person who is bitter? And if so, you have the ability to be a great influence for righteousness through your unconditional love for them. You have that capacity. This is exactly what happened with Ruth and Naomi. But look at the second half of verse one. She is also concerned about Ruth's well-being. The word here that in some translations, like the New American Standard Bible, is translated security. If you have the NSV in verse 2, it says, um, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? The LSB Bible, the Legacy Standard Bible, translates this more literally, shall I not seek a state of rest for you that it may go well with you? So in making that statement, Naomi is basically saying, Ruth, I see all your hard work. I see your labor. I see you putting your life on the line for me. Now, what I want to do in return for you is I want to seek rest for you. I want to seek rest for you. Now, it may have the broader context of being security or safety. It may have that context too, But the idea here is is she sees how hard Ruth has worked at this. Naomi's really concerned about Ruth being slavishly overworked, trying to supply for both of them. And she needed some relief, some help, some people to share her burdens. Earlier in chapter 2, Naomi was not worried about this at all. She was even willing to put Ruth at risk of being attacked and raped when she sent her out into the fields as a young woman during the barley harvest. But her tone now is completely changed. These are tender words, full of compassion for Ruth. She's concerned that Ruth could die of overwork or even die from some kind of risky exposure to ungodly kind of people or men. She even tells Ruth that she wants things to go well for her. She wants that to happen. 
So there is a tenderness in the way that she addresses her, but there's also a tenderness in the way that she advises Ruth. In keeping with the provisions and instructions of the law, Naomi develops a strategy to help Ruth not to have to work so hard or put herself at risk. And this strategy is going to lighten Ruth's load. And if it works, then it'll be in line with what Yahweh has already ordained. Um, It will help to provide well for her and for Ruth in the future. What is this plan? Well, Naomi is well familiar with the idea of the kinsman redeemer. Who is a kinsman redeemer? A kinsman redeemer is a man eligible to marry Ruth and provide offspring for her dead husband. And to our knowledge, Ruth would have had no idea about the possibility of of this if Naomi had not instructed her in the law. So as you go into chapter three, verses one through five, what Naomi is doing, she's really instructing Ruth in the Mosaic law. God provides for widows, especially ones who are still capable of bearing children and continuing the lineage of their husbands. The Hebrew idea of kinsman means that a man had a responsibility as a kinsman to help or rescue a close relative that happened to be in need. Sometimes you've heard this using the Hebrew word goel. Among the, the goel, the kinsman redeemer, among the Hebrews was the nearest living male blood relation, and on him was placed the responsibility of certain duties as a next of kin. They served... Two very practical purposes. One was to be, in essence, a, and I think this thing froze up or something. So can you advance that on the computer? I don't know. Well, the first one has to do with that of being a a blood avenger. Being a blood avenger. I don't know why it's not advancing. But that's the first part. The kinsman redeemer was supposed to be a blood avenger. Um, the closely bound blood ties of a family clan involved having personal responsibility if a crime was committed against uh, a family member. A crime against one member in a clan or a family was a crime against the entire family. And as a blood avenger, if this crime occurred, they were supposed to punish the wrongdoer. If murder occurred, the blood of the murdered man cries out from the ground, and the kinsman blood avenger must avenge the blood. This was the most primitive form of justice in ancient times. Now, if a death occurred accidentally, then the goel or the kinsman redeemer had no obligation or responsibility to exact vengeance if it's an accidental thing. So, um, the second part was that of being a, to be a redeemer. First one is a blood avenger. The second one is a redeemer. And it was the duty of the kinsman to redeem the paternal estate 
which the nearest relative might have sold off because of poverty. Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 25. If you want to go back there and look at this for a moment, Leviticus 25, 25, if a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor that he has to sell part of his property, then the nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. Now that's very significant, especially if you flip back to Ruth chapter four and verse four, where later on, we're going to study this in more detail, but this is Boaz speaking. Let it be that when he lies down, you shall know the place where he lies or no, excuse me, chapter four and verse four, I should say. So I thought to uncover this manner in your hearing saying, acquire it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if no one redeems it, tell me that I may know for there is no one but you to redeem it and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Now, who's he referring to? There was another man that was actually closer in a closer relative to Naomi and Ruth than Boaz was. And so he lets him have the first opportunity to be that kinsman redeemer in chapter four and verse four. So the kinsman redeemer was to ransom back the land of that relative. Uh, They had to consent first to being the kinsman redeemer. In other words, it wasn't automatic. He, He wasn't forced to do this. This is something that the kinsman redeemer on his own had to agree to in order for it to happen. It was not required. If they are willing, then it would actually take place. So these two areas here where um, there's tenderness um, in the way in which she advises her and she, the tenderness is shown in her knowledge of the Levitical law of the kinsman redeemer. She wants to enact that. Now, Ruth, who was the widow of Malone, son of Elimelech, stood in line as a relative to receive that kind of help, both in terms of land and marriage. Naomi understood this, and she explains the Levitical law to Ruth as a potential tender way to ease her burden. So not only was there tender instructions, but now, oh, you got it going there. Now, in addition to that, there was a timely interception here that she refers to. Look at verse two. She says, and now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose young women you were? Behold, he is winnowing barley at the threshing floor tonight. Now, Naomi has a good sense of timing and circumstances. She saw an opportunity and she wanted Ruth to take advantage of it and take advantage of it now. So one of the things that happens, it's timely because of the way that Boaz has included Ruth among the young working women. Boaz had already given Ruth permission back in chapter two and verse eight to serve alongside his maids in the field so that she could be protected And if Ruth returned to see Boaz during the harvest, no one's going to question her or prevent her from going back. So Boaz had already included her among his young working women. She had been uh, with them harvesting alongside of them in the field. So Naomi knew 
she could return safely there in order to put this Levitical plan of the kinsman redeemer into action. So it's timely because of that, but it's also timely because Boaz is still at the threshing floor. Now your question comes, how did Naomi know that? How did she know that? Well, when you look at verse two closely, Naomi saw a perfect opportunity because it was the barley harvest and she knew precisely where Boaz would be. He would be at the threshing floor making wise use of his time in order to gather in the harvest and winnow the chaff. And the threshing floor there in verse two was a very hard surface where the grain was trampled by animals in order to break the kernels from the stalks of grain. And then winnowing at this particular point involved separating the grain from the tiny broken pieces of stock, which was the chaff, after threshing. And that mixture then was tossed in the air, and the evening breeze would blow the lighter material away, which would leave just pure grain. And so that was a, there was a lot of chaff in the air, all right? And it almost looked like Christmas, all right? Like it was snowing, but there's chaff in the air all over the place. So Boaz was known to be a very hard, a very faithful worker. He did not leave all the work to his servants. Instead, he joined them in the field and at the threshing floor. We know he was an older man. How do we know that? Because later on in verse 10, look at verse 10. He says, then he said, may you be blessed of Yahweh. He's speaking, Boaz is speaking to Ruth, my daughter. You have shown your last loving kindness, um, to be better than the first by not going after younger men, whether poor or rich. <laughs> In other words, Boaz is referring to himself as an older man, right? He's an older man. He's not a young guy, okay? He's an older guy. We don't know how much older. There's a lot of speculation that's gone on in regards to that. But nevertheless, he is this older man. Um, so... We know he's an older man, and he could have easily allowed his workers to do all the work, but Naomi knew what Boaz's character was like, and she was able to perfectly predict where he would be. I know where he's going to be. It's harvest time. Barley, he's going to be at the threshing floor. That's where you need to go. So there you have Naomi's positive involvement. There's a second thing I want you to see here, and that's Naomi's preparatory instructions. Look at verse three now, where verse three says, so you shall wash yourself and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and you shall go down to the threshing floor, but not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. So Naomi knew that she needed to help Ruth be very intentional about this plan. A good plan requires three key elements, strategy, preparation, and execution, right? Strategy, preparation, and execution. Now, Naomi had the strategy, and now it was time for, to intentionally prepare. And then later on, it was up to Ruth to execute it. That's what had to be done. So there was thorough intentionality going on here. For Naomi's plan to work, some changes needed to be made. Ruth was sort of Cinderella before going to the ball. I mean, Naomi saw Ruth was a mess. 
Um, she worked the fields throughout the day. She was dirty, stinky, messy. She didn't look very attractive at all. Something had to change. It was time to paint the barn. <laughs> it was time to do that. So Ruth needed a thorough cleaning. She needed a thorough cleaning. She needed a good bath. The dirt and the dust of the field was caked all over her. It was in her hair and it was under her nails. And if she was going to present herself as an eligible bride, which she could do, then she needed some good scrubbing. This shows me that Naomi was taking no chances. If Yahweh was going to make this happen, then Ruth also had to do her part. She had to go take a good bath. Furthermore, she needed a thorough grooming. Then Naomi tells Ruth to anoint herself. Now, often in ancient times, both the Egyptians and the Hebrews, that meant pouring special olive oil in your hair to make it look shiny and on your skin as well. Uh, once the mud and the dirt was washed out, she applied oil to her hair and to her skin so it would glisten, appearing to be soft and smooth. Some of those ancient oils were also perfumed with flowery scents and aromic spices. We can see this in Mark 14 and verse 8, where a woman with alabaster vial of very costly perfume and oils poured it on Jesus' head. In Luke 23, 56, the women who anointed Jesus' body did the same thing. Very similar to the facial creams and the hair gels that we use today, only they used a refined olive oil. Naomi now wanted to make sure that Ruth looked good and smelled good. She was thorough in helping Ruth be clear as to her intentions here. Not only that, but she also needed a thorough dressing. Ruth had to get out of her work clothes and replace them with a garment of her best dress. Now, not having much clothing, they were extremely poor in those days. Most women kept a very special dress for very special occasions and religious ceremonies. So Naomi wanted Ruth to know that this is going to be one of those very special occasions, and she wanted her to look her finest. In fact, this was a once-in-a-lifetime event, and Ruth had to be well-prepared and looked her best if she had any chance of having this work at all. So she had to be cleaned. She had to be groomed. She had to be dressed properly in order for this to happen. But she's not going to a special home. She's going through a threshing floor, okay? This is a little bit different. Remember how I talked about the chaff in the air. She's going to a threshing floor. Now, how did Naomi know that Boaz was going to be a threshing floor because she understood the customs of the day and the danger of leaving barley and wheat at the threshing floor overnight. So if it was not safely guarded, thieves would rob Boaz of his harvest. So Boaz stayed and slept at the threshing floor in order to protect his investment. That was a very common thing to do. So Ruth was going to go and find Boaz at the threshing floor. Naomi instructed Ruth to go and find Boaz there. And after all the cleaning up that she has done, she would definitely have been noticed. All right. Every other young woman there was covered with dirt and chaff. She would be a head turner at this point. 
Boaz himself would have been fairly dirty when she arrived. So her appearance there would have been like a theatrical entrance. You know, all the dust and the chaff flying in the air, workers busily clearing the way, and the remaining grain, and Ruth comes walking through the smoke. All right? (laughs) Type of thing. Can you see this happening? Dressed in her very best. There she is. She's walking through. Ta-da! You can almost see the trumpets. But Naomi even knew this. And Naomi says, no, I want you to be really quiet about your entrance. (laughs) Get ready, but be really quiet. (laughs) Right? Ruth, who was, was supposed to time her interest until after Boaz was finished with eating and drinking. Supposed to time it. This is this is significant. All right. Um, so, um, young unmarried women, time it, time it, just perfectly. Okay. Naomi tells her to wait until the work was done, and Boaz had eaten his dinner and finished his wine. Ruth was there to impress only Boaz, not anyone else. And after working hard all that day and eating a good dinner. It would not have taken Boaz very long to fall asleep. And so there's the instructions that she gives her. Naomi shows herself to be incredibly wise in giving these detailed instructions. Incredibly wise. Which brings us to the third thing. Naomi's purposeful insight. Verses 4 and 5. Now, from this point on, Naomi wants Ruth to know that everything she does must follow her keen insight and detailed instructions. Even the smallest actions were scripted. She couldn't deviate from the plan. Otherwise, her actions could easily be misunderstood and misinterpreted. So at this point, Naomi blends her understanding of Jewish cultural practices with the Levitical law in verses 4 and 5. On the one hand, Ruth needed to be courageous in her inquisitiveness. And on the other hand, Ruth had to be timid and submissive in her inquiry. Now, this is kind of a little bit of a tightrope to walk because she's not exactly sure what Boaz's reaction was going to be to her and what she was going to propose here. So she was traditionally inquisitively, inquisitive. Now, here's the takeaway I want you to see concerning Ruth's reliance upon Naomi's insight. Naomi was well-versed in the covenantal law of Moses. Ruth was not. So Naomi begins to instruct Ruth on how to properly implement the law and its provision for families after the death of a husband. Now, here's the key. Ruth, listen, upholds the law by following Naomi's instructions and insight in seeking Boaz as her kinsman redeemer. She is deliberately upholding the law. And I think this is the main thing that Ruth is, is motivating her. I don't think that Ruth is looking for a husband deliberately. It's not her primary objective. Her objective here is to uphold the law, the Levitical law. That's what she wants to do. So Ruth had the attitude that if the Bible said it, that's exactly what I need to do. So the same boldness to leave her country of Moab, leave her birth family, forsake her gods, go with Naomi to Bethlehem is the same boldness that she will need now. She had to hold on to it and yet be submissive in the way she did it. So Ruth 
was to carefully practice an ancient rite of Hebrew marriage proposal. Here, Hebrew marriage proposal. Here, Boaz was going to sleep at the threshing floor to protect his grain. And it talks about uncovering the feet of Boaz was really a symbol of Ruth's submission. It alerted her kinsman redeemer to the fact that she sought his protection in light of the culture and the high moral character of Ruth and Boaz. There was nothing improper about that procedure. The word spread the corner of the covering in chapter three and verse nine fashioned as a marriage proposal that Boaz was only too happy to consider the word covering there in three, nine is the translation of the same Hebrew word back in chapter two and verse 12 that refers to wings. Same thing refers to wings, the wings of God. Boaz took precaution against scandal. Then later on in verse 14, and we'll talk about this next Sunday, which showed that he already had was functioning as Ruth's protector. So then Ruth was to uncover Boaz's feet and lie down at his feet. So to uncover the feet was an act of submission that goes way back in Jewish tradition. The Hebrews viewed the feet with special significance. To be under a person's feet was to place yourself under their authority. Um, In 1 Kings chapter 5 and verse 3, uh, Ruth's grandson, great-grandson, Uh, David, you know that David, my father, was able to build a house for the house of the Lord, his God, because of the wars which surrounded him, or was unable to do that, because of the wars that surrounded him, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25, therefore the apostle Paul speaks of Jesus Christ. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Ephesians 1.22, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things in the church. And then the author of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, verses 12 and 13 says, but he having offered one sacrifice for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. So for Ruth... To be under the feet of Boaz indicates she was willing to come under his authority and submit to him. In addition, Naomi instructs her to lie down at his feet. Do not, you you should never twist this into some kind of sexual gesture by Ruth. This is a very respectful way of her indicating that she is willing to be a part of his household under his protection for a lifetime. She's willing to make her home with him and even be his wife. She was throwing herself upon his mercy in this act, hoping that Boaz would be willing to reciprocate and become their kinsman redeemer. This last part then is a timid inquiry. Now, once and for all, this was done on Ruth's part. There was nothing else to be, that could be done. And Naomi knew that Boaz would understand the meaning of Ruth's actions and informed her. So Ruth was to wait for Boaz's instructions. Boaz could have responded in anger if he believed that he was being taken advantage of. After all, he was a wealthy older man and Ruth could be looking for a, what we would call today a sugar daddy, a man who would lavish her with riches and anything she wants. 
Sometimes younger women do that today. They look for wealthy older men to marry, to acquire their wealth, hoping that they will not live long. It's an age-old game. <laughs> All right? So have you ever wondered, Pastor Tom, whether or not your wife married you for this reason? Or... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So she was certainly not going after him because he was handsome, younger, or wealthy. It is implied in 310 she could have successfully sought younger men, presumably more good-looking, but she does not. Ruth did not know how Boaz was going to react to her marriage proposal. So this is the reason Naomi insisted that Ruth wait to hear Boaz's response. Don't try to force the matter, she says to him. And then Ruth agrees to follow everything Naomi has instructed. You can see that in verse 5. When, um, what was Ruth's motivation? Well, I believe uh, the flow of the argument of this is unmistakable. Ruth wanted to rightfully see the Levitical law of Moses was honored in clear instructions of the importance of a kinsman redeemer. She wanted to serve her mother-in-law. She wanted to fulfill her rightful purpose as a grieving widow for a deceased husband. She genuinely wanted to be a submissive and productive wife for Boaz. And if that is what Yahweh wanted her to do, then her heart was in complete agreement with this. All of this is truly remarkable when you consider that Ruth was raised in a Moabite paganism. Yahweh had won her heart. She was a radically changed pagan convert. And if this is true of someone like Ruth, then there's hope for you and I. As pagan Gentile rebels, he saves and he gives us new hearts to serve him. So Naomi's renewed love for Ruth brought this about. She developed the strategy. She helped Ruth prepare. And it was up to Ruth for the execution. We'll talk about the execution of this next week. So when you remember that at birth, Naomi and Ruth were arch enemies. The Israelites, the Moabites were constantly at war. What happens between Naomi and Ruth is truly unbelievable. One pastor said it like this, love is sincerely wishing the other person's God's very best and taking whatever action is necessary to see that accomplished. That's exactly what Naomi did for Ruth. And so in our next message, we're going to look at how well Ruth executed Naomi's strategy. There is still a lot more to this incredible and remarkable story. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for uh, this tremendous story of your providential provision in the life of Ruth and Naomi. And Father, especially what you have intended to do about this in terms of redemptive history in bringing about the Savior. So help us, Father, to be faithful, much the same way Ruth was to you and to your word. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>